DiscerningHearts.com presents The Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce. Joseph Pierce is the director of the Center for Faith and Culture and writer-in-residence at Aquinas College in Nashville, Tennessee. He's a renowned biographer whose works include his own autobiography as well as books on the lives of Father Ho Lang, William Shakespeare, J.R.R. Tolkien, L.R. Belloc, G.K. Chesterton, and numerous others. He's the recipient of an honorary doctorate of higher education from Thomas More College for the Liberal Arts and has also received the Pollock Award for Christian Biography. He is the co-editor of the St. Austin Review and has hosted two series on Shakespeare for EWTN as well as hosting several EWTN productions on J.R.R. Tolkien. The Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. When solicitor's clerk, Jonathan Hawker, travels to Transylvania on business to meet a mysterious Romanian count named Dracula, he little expects the horrors this strange meeting will unleash. Thus, Bram Stoker's 1897 novel of blood and passion begins, rapidly accelerating from Harker's nightmarish experiences in Castle Dracula to a full-fledged assault on late Victorian London itself. The story, narrated through a collection of documents, primarily journal entries and letters, chronicles the desperate efforts of a band of gentlemen to protect the virtue of their ladies and lay to rest the ancient threat once and for all. Often vacillating wildly between the terrible and the comic, Dracula at the same time brings to life a host of compelling themes. Tensions between antiquity and modernity, the powers and limitations of technology, the critical importance of feminine virtue, the difference between superstition and religion, the nature of evil, and perhaps the most compelling, the complex relationship between ancient faith and scientific enlightenment. More vivid than any of its varied film adaptations and over a century after its first publication, Dracula still retains its sharp bite. We now begin our discussion on Bram Stoker and Dracula. Joseph, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, my pleasure as always, Chris. We'll be talking about Bram Stoker's Dracula. Most people, I think today, Joseph, think they know the Dracula story, but unless they've read this particular work by Bram Stoker, I mean the actual book, not a movie entitled Bram Stoker's Dracula, but the actual book, they really don't know the story, do they? No, you know, there's there's a similarity in many ways between Dracula and Frankenstein. Now, these are the, the, the classic novels of, of modern British literature that have become, if you like, icons of the, of the movie generation, of the movie age, so that more people, when you say Frankenstein, most people will think of a movie and not of the novel. And, and similarly with Dracula, when you say Dracula, most people will think of movies, now some of these horrible TV vampire things, rather than, uh, rather than the novel. That's because the novels have themselves become somewhat iconic. They've actually, if you like, they're mythic, create a myth they create a story that is so powerful in its symbolism and its imagery that it actually develops a life of its own and, and uh, what grows out of control in many ways. And people start doing all sorts of things with it, not necessarily good things. 
That's a, a real key. I'm, I'm glad you brought up uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. It's an interesting comparison. Frankenstein was a story that was written essentially over a weekend by a 19-year-old. Dracula is written by a man who spent years in research on this. It turned out to be, like Frankenstein, one of the great, can call them bestsellers in the 19th century. Yeah, but again, I think that what's happened is that Mary Shelley is a, is a very gifted teenager, and uh, Bram Stoker, who you know was more of uh, someone working in theatre than in fiction, these writers have, have basically managed to tap into something which is very mythologically powerful. What captured the imagination of their readers was the power of the story and the symbolism and the evil present in both of them uh, and the religious and philosophical ramifications of that. And that, I think, captured the imagination of the readers. Because, you know, uh, neither Mary Shelley or Bram Stoker, taken together with the wisdom of hindsight, can be considered great novelists. I mean, Mary Shelley really produced nothing of real note following this wonderful, prodigious early novel as a teenager. And Bram Stoker is really only remembered for this one work, although he wrote another couple of novels that people tend to think are, are pretty forgettable. These two people, again, have something else in common. They're not great novelists, but what they've done is actually taken a theme which is so powerful and so huge and so enormous that it captures and captivates the imagination of generations of, of readers and, and, again, moviegoers in the years following publication. Bram Stoker growing up in Ireland as a Protestant, not a Catholic. Yeah, I mean, one of the very interesting things about Dracula is the fact the real power of the novel is in the power of the church. It's not until Professor Van Helsing arrives on the scene, who's a Catholic and who is not a scientific materialist and therefore a skeptic about this demonic presence that Dracula is, and represents. It's not until he arrives that we start to actually be able to combat the evil with any authority and with any success. And of course, he combat the evil not merely in conventional medical or scientific terms, but in terms of the power of the supernatural. In other words, that the crucifix is a weapon that you can use against Dracula. Uh, and, and later, and somewhat bizarrely, you know, the Blessed Sacrament itself is used as a powerful weapon against Dracula. So we see basically, and, and somewhat ironically, bearing in mind that Bram Stoker was Protestant, that it's only through the power of the church that the power of evil is defeated and overcome in Dracula. I love your selection of editors, as you said, and those who would give commentary to this particular edition, because truly it's important, I think, for those who are going to read this, to read the Catholic perspective through the Catholic lens, to understand exactly what the difference is in superstition and religion and religious and symbolic figures as he brings out in this book. Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that happens in Dracula is that most of the characters, with the exception of Van Helsing, begin as radically skeptical 
about Catholicism, a radical skeptical about the, about the existence of the supernatural. Throughout the, the, the unfolding and unraveling of the plot of the novel itself, one by one they become convinced that essentially of the supernatural basis for reality and, the, and the, the supernatural basis for evil and the supernatural basis for good and ultimately that authority resides in the Catholic Church. Now this might be very odd and surprising, again be, bearing in mind that, that Stoker is not a Catholic, but we should bear in mind that where Bram Stoker's coming from and the, the sort of culture and milieu he's working uh, in, his wife, Florence Balcom, was actually, funnily enough and, and coincidentally enough, was, was Oscar Wilde's first love, and Oscar Wilde wrote some, some wonderful poetry to Florence Balcom. But Florence Balcom ultimately rejects Wilde in favor of Bram Stoker and marries him. But you know, within a few years of the publication of Dracula, Florence Balcom is actually received into the Catholic Church. So basically, you know, while Bram Stoker is writing this novel, his wife is en route to conversion. So if you have this powerful presence, although he's not a Catholic himself, there's certainly this Catholic presence in his life, which, if you like, spills over as an influence in the work. It's so fascinating when you read the book. I, I reread it again. I, I have to admit, the first time I read it, I was in high school. I didn't appreciate it, didn't understand it, and I buzzed through it very quickly, Joseph. Going back now as an adult and reading it, I'm almost kind of angry with what, again, what modern culture has done with the story, because Bram Stoker's Dracula, it, there's nothing attractive about this evil. There, There is nothing, I, I hate to use the term sexed up about this particular figure to make it erotically attractive. And, and yet, the way the story would be told subsequently throughout the 20th century, he becomes this uh, Byronic figure who is to be pitied instead of something that should be resisted. Yeah, I mean, this is the consequence, of course, of the radical change in the culture in the century uh, since Dracula was published, that basically the culture has become radically relativist, uh, which means that there can be no acceptance of the objective nature of sin, or the objective nature of evil, or the objective nature of virtue, or the supernatural underpinning of our understanding of right and wrong and good and evil. Therefore, everything has to be ambivalent, ambiguous, it has to not be cut and dried, and certainly if anybody is evil, the, the relativist, and certainly the anti-Christian relativist, will demand that they become a figure of sympathy. Uh, so consequently, yes, what's happened is, is the radical inversion of the meaning of Dracula and the radical perversion of it. And let's get one thing clear here, that Dracula himself and the, the, whole, the whole tradition of vampires is, a, a, is itself an inversion and perversion of the precious blood of Jesus Christ, because Christ gives his blood that we may live. Dracula takes the blood of his victims that he may live and they may die. So one, if you like, injects the blood of life into humanity. The other sucks the blood of life out of humanity. So when, when we now have a situation where the blood sucker becomes the hero, where of course in, in Bram Stoker's work he's very much the, the villain, mm -hmm. when, when the blood sucker becomes the hero, we have an inversion and perversion which is, quite frankly, and let's be honest about this, diabolical. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, even the fact that uh, as it would evolve the vampire genre into the, that whole Twilight series and the, the subsequent movies and even the spinoffs and different types of movies that would follow, that 
a woman would embrace and we would root for her to give up life in heaven, the opportunity that there's even an acknowledgement that there's salvation in something better so that she can run around on a decaying world with her with her guy for the, the rest of eternity. <laughs> I mean, right. and we cheer that in our kids. And even as adults, we go and we embrace that and think that's beautiful. Right. I mean, we've seen the... the, the the perversion of literature. I mean, you and I, uh, a little while back, discussed my book, Shakespeare on Love, mm-hmm. um, seeing the Catholic person in Romeo and Juliet, where Romeo says that heaven is here where Juliet lives. And the point is that if we idolize ourselves narcissistically and idolize those who can bring us pleasure narcissistically, then we will actually desire to live a decadent, decaying, ultimately unsatisfying and unfulfilling and ultimately miserable existence on earth rather than to give ourselves self-sacrificially in love to God and neighbor that we may merit heaven by the, by the, by the will and mercy of God. So, so consequently, what we're seeing in this adulteration and perversion of the Dracula myth and the Dracula novel is this radical rejection of virtue and of God and quite frankly, pride run rampant. What is pride? Pride is basically making ourselves God and making ourselves the center of the cosmos. Well, the the, the Twilight series and these uh, other perversions of the vampire genre are quite frankly pride ran rampant, which really means that Dracula, instead of being a demon to be defeated and resisted, becomes a god to be worshipped. And that's basically what's happening. And, you know, the devils are always working to invert the good and pervert the good, and here we see examples of where that's the case. And if I may say so, this merely highlights why the Ignatius Critical Editions are so important and so crucial. The reason that we have an Ignatius Critical Edition of Dracula, as we have Ignatius Critical Editions of many of the other great works of literature, Mm -hmm. is because the modern world is perverting and inverting and distorting their meaning for their own purposes, for its own purposes. So this is about restoring tradition and restoring the meaning of the works to that which was intended by the authors of the works themselves as the products of a Christian culture. So that's why the Ignatius Creditions are important. And the, if you like, the abuse of Dracula, which we see in the modern world, is an illustration of why the Ignatius Critical Edition of Dracula is so important. Dracula by Bram Stoker, Chapter 18. A year ago, which of us would have received such a possibility in the midst of our scientific, sceptical, matter-of-fact 19th century? We even scouted a belief that we saw justified under our very eyes. Take it, then, that the vampire, and the belief in his limitations and his cure, rest for the moment on some base. For, let me tell you, he is known everywhere that men have been. In old Greece, in old Rome, he flourished in Germany all over, in France, in India, even in the Germanese and in China, so far from us in all ways, there even is he, and the peoples for him at this day. He have followed the wake of the berserker Icelander, the devil-begotten Hun, the Slav, the Saxon, the Magyar. So far, then, we have all we may act upon, and let me tell you that very much of the beliefs are justified by what we have seen in our own so unhappy experience. The vampire live on, and cannot die by mere passing of the time. He can flourish when that he can fatten on the blood of the living. Yet he is not free. 
Nay, he is even more prisoner than the slave of the galley, than the madman in his cell. He cannot go where he lists. He who is not of nature has yet to obey some nature's laws. Why? We know not. He may not enter anywhere at the first, unless there be some one of the household who bid him to come, though afterwards he can come as he please. His power ceases, as does that of all evil things, at the coming of the day. Only at certain times can he have limited freedom. If he be not at the place whither he is bound, he can only change himself at noon, or exact sunrise or sunset. These things we are told, and in this record of ours we have proof by inference. Thus, whereas he can do as he will within his limit, when he have his earth home, his coffin home, his hell home, the place unhallowed, as we saw when he went to the grave of the suicide at Whitby, still, at other time, he can only change when the time come. It is said, too, that he can only pass running water at the slack or the flood of the tide. Then there are things which so afflict him that he has no power, as the garlic that we know of, and as for things sacred, as this symbol, my crucifix, that was amongst us even now when we resolve. To them he is nothing, but in their presence he take his place far off and silent with respect. There are others, too, which I shall tell you of, lest in our seeking we may need them. Joseph, to the, the 19th century English audience that's reading this book for the first time, and it becomes so popular, they, as we've kind of alluded to, are encountering a Dracula that's very clearly shown to have pointy ears, ferociously bad breath, is not an attractive figure at all. What is it about the book then? What is it about this particular work that appealed to so many that it was became such a big seller. Well, I think that you know that we are made for God, that we are both body and soul, and therefore there's something in our very beings, our psyche, our soul, which is supernatural and is hungry for the supernatural. And that's why the works that convey the supernatural, whether it be in the dramatic way that Dracula does by in introducing the demonic as a character in the story, or whether it just be the way that, that evil is perceived in conventional morality, you know, in a book, for instance, such as Wuthering Heights, where Heathcliff, if you like, is, is, uh, is a quasi-demonic figure, although not, strictly speaking, supernatural in the sense that Dracula is. Mm -hmm. The point is there's, there's, that we are not satisfied you know, as, as St. Augustine says, we are restless until we rest in thee. We are not satisfied with anything other than God and our home in heaven. So we have a desire and a need and an appetite for the supernatural. So, uh, and as Chesterton said, if we stop believing God, we don't believe in nothing, we believe in anything. Which is why the, the, the vampire genre continues to be powerful, but instead of being something which shows the, the dangers of the satanic, the demonic, it now shows the how the satanic and the demonic are attractive. But ironically, it still shows a desire for the supernatural, a need for the supernatural, basically rooted in the fact that we are not merely natural. We are not just animals. We're souls, souls made to be with God in heaven, souls capable of being seduced by the devil. And it's a battlefield, and it's a supernatural battlefield. And the whole vampire genre is where we see that battlefield being fought. That you know, the, the, the original novel is certainly on the side of, of the angels, in the sense that the demon is seen as being demonic and must be defeated using the power of the church. Even the British genre of the Hammer horror films of the 1950s and early 1960s, mm -hmm. starring 
Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee, you know, that the, the guaranteed to be protected from Dracula if you could hold a crucifix up to him. So, you know, so there was this supernatural dimension that was positive and healthy that we, we see in the last 50 years has been perverted. So it's now the very reverse. And that, if you like, the supernatural struggle is still being fought, but the modern world has decided to fight with the demon against God. Yeah, it's very interesting. And the Ignatius Critical Editions wants to make sure you catch this, that it's not just a cross, but it's the crucifix. Absolutely. It's not the magical use of the cross, but it's it's entering into the mystery of what is occurring in the crucifixion on that cross. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's significant and symbolic that the object that has the power is the crucifix and not the cross. The cross, of course, is uh, the, the Protestant, if you like, removal of Christ from the cross. And you know, Chesterton commented that, that how is it considered idolatrous to have a crucifix, but not idolatrous to remove the body of Christ from it and just, worship, and just idolize the wood. That certainly, this is just one illustration of how Bram Stoker, a Protestant writer, sees the power of Catholicism. Again, it's the, it's the, it has to be the Catholic Eucharist, and not the Anglican equivalent which has the power to restrain the vampires in Dracula. It's the crucifix and not the cross. So we see here that the Catholic Church is seen as having power. Its sacramentalism has power. Its sacraments have power. Its sacramentals, such as crucifixes, have power. Its sacraments, such as the Blessed Sacrament, has power. And that Protestantism, which basically, insofar as it exists merely in the skepticism of the other characters, is seen as powerless against the reality of evil. There's a scene in the book where Van Helsing has the Blessed Sacrament. He's given, it's not necessarily the proper verbiage. I mean, he he calls it an indulgence instead of a dispensation properly, but he grinds it up and then he uses that and the almost the awe of which they reverence the presence of something they, they don't Absolutely. articulate it but it's really it's compelling yeah of course it's the real presence of christ in the blessed sacrament that has the power to defeat dracula and his disciples uh, in the novel of course you know that we see in the fact that he uses the word indulgence instead of dispensation illustrates his lack of real grasp of of the essentials of Catholicism and the fact that one finds it hard to believe that the Catholic Church would ever, ever give a dispensation to grind up the Blessed Sacrament Mm -hmm. and sprinkle it around the place. He's a Protestant and these are are factual errors, uh, errors in detail that will grate with the Catholic reader who sees, well, that just is not realistic. But Mm -hmm. the point is that it's only the Catholic sacrament and the Catholic sacramentals that have the power, not the Protestant ones. It is, again, fascinating that this book would come forward and be such a big seller at the same time when uh, a pope in Rome, approximately the same time, that Pope Leo XIII is there, acknowledging that there is an assault of evil on the planet and that it will occur in ways we don't even appreciate. Yeah, I mean, basically, amongst other things, I mean, Leo, Leo XIII is a favorite Pope of mine and of my wife's, and one of the reasons that our son Leo is called Leo is because of Leo the Thirteenth. Hmm. Um, I admire him for many things, but of course he's also the author of the famous St. Michael prayer that we say at the end of Mass. Uh, mm-hmm. St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle, you know, protect us against the wickedness and snares of the devil. So yes, that, that Leo the Thirteenth was uh, had absolutely no illusions about the power of the devil. And what would be interesting, and I haven't actually studied this, is the extent to which perhaps 
Bram Stoker was aware of what Pope Leo was saying about the satanic and about the necessity of, of fighting evil through the power of, uh, of, not, of the church and the saints and the archangels. How much of that would have been known to Bram Stoker? That would be an interesting study in itself and perhaps uh, something somebody <laughs> some stage should take up. Well, it, there's a lot to glean here. And again, I'm just so thankful for the work of yourself and also the others on the Ignatius Critical Editions for bringing these works forward, especially at a time when the message that they had to convey at that time has been flipped. And our culture could truly benefit by going back to the original sources of many of these, can we call them genres, the vampire genre, and to really take a look at what were they trying to tell us and what has happened in reflection to us since that time. Absolutely. I mean, you know, the original inspiration and instigation of the Ignatius Critical Editions was when I was teaching a course on Romanticism to my students, and I set them two texts. Uh, one was, was Frankenstein, and the other was Wuthering Heights. That uh, the, the, the text that I ordered were, was so full of, of this modern inversion of the uh, meaning of the work, whether it be so-called queer theory or feminism or just anti-Christianity, that I decided that I don't, didn't want to actually patronize these anti-Christian works that were completely not the inverting the true meaning of the original uh, work of literature, and nor did I want to put them in the hands of my students, which was why we launched the Ignatius Critical Editions in the first place. And Dracula was a perfect example of why tradition-oriented critical edition is necessary because the modern understanding of Dracula and the vampire genre has been perverted so, so awfully that we really do need to have a critical edition of the text that we can trust. And uh, you know, the, the Ignatius Critical Edition, edited by a good Catholic who knows the work very well, with critical essays by good Catholics and Protestants who understand the, the true meaning of the work, that's absolutely necessary in an age which is deliberately perverting and inverting and distorting and turning evil into good and good into evil and trying to get us to, to support the demon instead of trying to destroy him. And there's also, again, I think we've talked about this in the past, the value of the lesson that is contained in the story and what we live in uh, generations now that have been affected by the Disney effect on our fairy tales. When you can take a tale of the little mermaid and yeah. allow this girl to give up her greatest gift for an unrequited love and somehow turn this into a happy ending so that generations hear these great tales that have now, they have their effect and also their consequences, don't they? Absolutely. I mean, you know, there, there's so much damage done by the destruction of Christian culture, by the deliberate misreading of it. I mean, you can take the power away from Catholic culture in a number of ways. One is to ignore it and just treat the past with contempt. And that, of course, is, is done very much these days. The other is to take the past and pervert it. And that's exactly what we see happening. I mean, one of the reasons I've written so much on Shakespeare recently is that my absolutely disgust at Shakespeare abuse, the way that producers and directors and, and professors of literature have taken Shakespeare and vandalized him in the interests of their own anti-Shakespearean agendas. And uh, what's true of Shakespeare? And that's why, of course, so many of the Ignatius Critical Editions have been Shakespeare plays, about six of them. 
now, I think. But what's true of Shakespeare is true of these other great monuments of Catholic civilization that these great works of literature represent. And that's why it's necessary for us to reclaim culture, to have tradition-oriented editions of these works that can be trusted by parents, by teachers, and by readers. Mm. Any final thoughts on Bram Stoker and Dracula? Well, I, my final thought would be uh, probably coming back to where, where we began, and that taps into the supernatural, as Frankenstein does. It goes to the heart of who we are as human beings, as those who are rooted in the supernatural, that are driven towards the supernatural because our source and roots are in the supernatural. And although Bram Stoker is somewhat confused, uh, in his understanding of, of uh, an orthodox way of seeing these things, he's basically on the side of the angels in the sense that he sees the Catholic Church as the only real power against the demonic. Hmm. Joseph, thank you so much. Well, my pleasure as always, Chris. You've been listening to Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce. To hear and or to download this conversation along with hundreds of other spiritual formation programs, visit discerninghearts.com. This has been a production of Discerning Hearts. I'm your host, Chris McGregor. We hope that if this has been helpful for you, that you will first pray for our mission. And if you feel us worthy, consider a charitable donation, which is fully tax deductible to help support our efforts. But most of all, we hope that you will tell a friend about discerninghearts.com and join us next time for The Great Works in Western Literature with Joseph Pierce.